I don't uh, relinquish this uh, pulpit lightly. And uh, as you well know, I'm pretty selective about who I would want to come and stand here and open the Word of God with us. But it is my pleasure this morning to have a, a dear friend and brother in the Lord, Michael Heward, come and to open the Word for us this morning. Many of you know Michael. Some of you perhaps do not. So let me just tell you this. Um, uh, Michael has been a member of uh, Foothill Bible Church for some number of years now. I don't recall how many. And uh, recently, back last spring, finished his Master of Divinity degree at Talbot Theological Seminary and is now waiting on the Lord to uh, actually standing on the promises, maybe is a good way to say it, uh, waiting for the Lord to uh, make uh, known to uh, he and his wife, Terry, the place of ministry that God has selected for them. So we have been praying uh, for them and we're continuing to do so. I know there are a number of opportunities out there, but Michael is is waiting on the Lord to make clear just what place that he would uh, place you, my brother, that you could give your life wholeheartedly to the service of God in that way. So it's with a great um, uh, sense of pleasure and anticipation that I ask you to come and and to uh, open the word with us. And uh, we will go ahead and do that. We are having technical difficulties. Are we good to go? All right. Yeah, just stick in your pocket. That happens to me. All right, brother, come open the word for us. Am I on? Okay, that's good. Because I could talk for about an hour and then, you know, step down. Everybody's, well, what was that all about? I'm grateful that... uh, Okay. Am I on? Okay. Excuse us for the technical difficulty. Well, I'm not on. Okay. Now? It's always good when things go smoothly. It makes you feel so much more comfortable in front of other people. I did bring my shoes, didn't I? (laughs) I'm grateful to Andy for reading from Deuteronomy. And the reason for that is it coincides very well with what I asked David to read for the passage. And that was the passage in in, uh, Judges about Samson. The reason why I'm grateful for that is that Deuteronomy sets the stage for what the story of Samson is about. In fact, if you are not familiar with the book of Deuteronomy, a lot of the Bible later on won't make sense. As was being read, it's a sermon or a series of sermons that Moses gave to the children of Israel. As you probably remember, they have been promised this land through Abraham and God's covenant with them. And through a series of events, God has brought them to the very cusp of the land that he's going to give them as he has promised to do so. Before they go in, however, because this generation that has come up has not heard the law, Moses preaches to them all the things that they need to know and the warnings and the blessings and promises that God gives through Moses are this, that if you will obey me, I will bless you profoundly in every way that you can imagine. But if you do not, then all those things that you fear, all the things that could possibly go wrong, I will bring upon you as a curse so that you and everyone else will know that to obey the Lord brings blessing. To disobey the Lord brings curses. The book of Judges that follows up 
a generation later, tells a series of tragic stories. The tragedy is that these people with such great promise that it entered the land with a promise that God himself was on their side and would provide for them beyond their wildest comprehensions had chosen instead of obeying God to disobey God. And story after story chronicles how the people failed, that they chose to do something other than what God had commanded them to do. To me, the story of Samson has always been an interesting one because it seems like the epitome of the tragedies of the book of Judges. Because as you begin to read the story in chapter 13, which we didn't read here today, you read about a man who before he was born, that an angel came to his father and said, this individual will be separated and his task will be to begin to free you from the oppression of the Philistines. And from his birth, he was to be separated as a Nazarite. And that word means to be separated to God. And his role was to be the leader of the people, to be somebody pure who is set aside holy to the Lord. But when we read the end of his story, we see that that's not what happened. What we see is a man who, when he came to the end of 20 years of leadership over his people, it is only his dying act that begins to move in the direction of what God had ordained for him to do. Now, God in his providence is never thwarted, so God did, in fact, accomplish the beginning of what he said was going to happen through Samson. But Samson's life was not what it could have been. It was a life of waste. And as he was in his dying moment, even there you don't see a beginning of the kind of repentance that should have been there. Instead of him saying, I failed you, Lord, and this is my opportunity to begin to do what you called me to do, the only thing that he can think about is it's an opportunity to take revenge for the way his eyes had been gouged out and he had been humiliated by the Philistines. Why this story is significant to me, as I reflect upon it, is he came to the end of his life and we read about this and his life was a tragedy. He came short of his potential. And I wonder how true can that be of us? Because I think of the words of Jesus when he was speaking and he was talking about how he was the good shepherd. He said something that sticks in my mind quite frequently. He said that he came not only to give us life, but to give us a life that is abundant. Now, sometimes people have concluded that what that means is it's an eternal life. And of course, you can't get much more abundant than eternity. But that's not the idea that's in mind. It's an idea of something that's rich and full. And when that word is used elsewhere, it speaks of those who have far more than what they need. The idea is that when Jesus came to call us, he called us to a life that is rich, which is exactly what we read in Deuteronomy, that God's people have always been promised that if they will obey him, they will have a rich and full existence. And to do anything else then will be to turn your back on that potential. For Samson, when we read about his story, it's too late. But the issue I think that we need to focus on is someday we will be where Samson was at the end of our lives. One of the things that frankly makes me a little frightened sometimes is what will that be like? Will I be like Samson where I was so distracted by pursuing what I wanted that my life will come to absolute ruin and mean nothing in eternity for what I could have accomplished? Now we read in the book of Hebrews that Samson is an example of faith, so there's no reason to think that he wasn't genuinely a believer in Yahweh. But his life was still a waste. Could that happen to me? Could that happen to you? As I pondered that, I thought it was time maybe to kind of reflect on what I believe is important 
as we are called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. How can we be sure that when we get to that place where we stand before God, that our story will be different than Samson's? So, first of all, I'm going to look at the worldview of a disciple and how this plays out so that we can go, go through our lives with a focus on what will make us successful. So that when we come to the end of our lives, we can be confident that we will not be ashamed of what has happened and transpired between now and then. This is an instruction in Matthew chapter 16 about the way that he wanted his disciples to look at life. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Matthew 16, starting in verse 24, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will man give in exchange for his soul? Because we are so far removed historically and experientially from their world, sometimes we can misunderstand what's being spoken of. In our culture, frequently people will talk about having their cross to bear, and that can be anything from having a bad transmission on their car to having stubbed their toe. But in Jesus' world... There's only one thing that could possibly be meant when you say, take up your cross and follow me. He was saying that to be his disciple required that they pursue a life that's going to lead to their own execution. That they had to die if they were to live. And he elaborates on that by saying that if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your your life for my sake, you will find it. To understand that, I think it's helpful to realize that when we become a Christian and commit ourselves to Christ, we're going through the looking glass. Our whole way of looking at life changes. The things that we thought were true before, we find out aren't true after all. And the things that we thought were unimportant, we find out are very important. The essence of what Jesus is saying, to make it very simple and straightforward, is to understand that he is saying that the life that we lived before must come to an end. And the life that he is going to call to us to is a life that's completely different. That's important because as we go forward, it's very easy to think that Christianity is something that we sort of add to what the life that we had already. That we sort of baptize our existence and then do a few things we didn't do before and go forward. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. That's not what the Christian life is about. That's not what the people of God have ever been about. And the reason why Jesus phrases it this way is because there's a common theme that runs from the beginning of the Bible to the end. A tension that exists between God and between his creatures. And that tension is that God created us to obey him, to do what he says, because he knows all things. He never makes any mistakes and he's completely good. But what happened in the fall is that we had this pernicious twisting of our souls. And as David shared last week, it's a mystery of how this works and how it gets passed on. But the reality is that each one of us carries this twisted nature inside of us. And the essence of it is that we want to do our own thing. We want our way. And that that is the heart of the struggle from the beginning to the end of what we are called to be. Sort of a spiritual tug of war between that part of us that still wants things our way and the call of God to relinquish that, to die to that orientation of life, and to step into a resurrected life where we live fully to obey and to please God. 
From this, many other teachings of the scriptures come into play to tell us a little bit about what this means, how to understand this. And so I thought I'd select a few of the difference in our worldview. First of all, we go from having an orientation of pride to an orientation of humility. And we talk about pride a lot. And I used to wonder when I was a young Christian, what's the big deal? How bad could pride be? It wasn't until later in my life that I discovered that pride, at its very essence, is self-centeredness. I am the center of my world. What's important to me is more important than anything else. That I have an inflated view of myself. And Scripture warns repeatedly that this is a dangerous thing to the point that twice in the New Testament, the proverb is quoted that says that God resists the proud. Because it's dangerous to be self-centered. And if the essence of our struggle with God is to have our own way, then to be oriented about oneself is the very essence of that problem. By contrast, humility is not necessarily saying that I am the scum of the earth, no matter how true that may be sometimes. It's the idea of seeing that compared to God, I longer see everything revolving around us, but around God instead. And we begin to recognize that from God's perspective, I'm no more important than anyone else. And in fact, what's important for me to do is to kind of wean myself away from this self-absorbed, selfish, self-oriented way of looking at life is for me to begin to see others as more important than myself. So, for instance, in the book of of Philippians, Paul encourages his readers, if you're going to make it through this life and be all the things that God intends for you to do, if you're going to be able to be successful as you resist the persecution and suffering that is involved in following Christ, you need one another. And if there's to be any comfort to one another, it must rest in this, that you look not only upon your own own needs, but upon the needs of others. And he uses the most profound example possible in that of Jesus Christ. That he put us before himself, even to the point of a violent and cruel death. Another thing that the New Testament encourages us to is to go from having a life that's oriented around sight to one that's oriented on faith. Now, in our world again today, we tend to think of faith as being well, just having a general belief that everything's going to be okay, or that God is out there and He's taking care of me, or that if I believe in that something enough, it'll happen regardless. But that's not what the essence of this is either. Again, it focuses on this struggle that we have between God and ourselves of wanting things our way. The reason why we live by faith is because, or by sight, is because we can see things, we can feel them, we can discern them, and so we're living by our own judgment. I know best, based on everything I understand, this is what I need to do, and that's what we do. Whereas faith is the complete opposite of that. Instead of going by our own inclinations, we're holding tenaciously on God and saying, you know best. I'm accepting that absolutely. And the reason why this is so difficult is because God will tell us sometimes things that don't make sense to us. And I think he does that intentionally so we are faced with this tension that we have to relinquish what we think is best. Another way that this manifests itself, and I think probably in our culture the most predominant way, is we go in a death towards being served and a new life towards serving others. That we see our lives as a stewardship that God has given us basically in service to Him and not in just the fulfilling of our own desires. 
This is so crucial because in a sense, this tension is the heart of all pagan worship. All pagan worship is centered around one thing. How do I manipulate my God to make him do what I need him to do so that my life will turn out the way I want it to? And the dangerous thing is that we can begin to see our relationship with the true God in exactly the same way. That everything that we do tends to be, in a sense, treating God like he was this incredible vending machine. That If we put in the right coin, out will pop whatever we want from him. And then that puts God in a place of serving us, that he exists to make our lives what we want them to be. But the truth of the matter is that God wants us to understand that if we're going to be converted to what we need to be, if we're to die to what we used to be and sin is to be resisted, we need to recognize that we are to not only trust him, but serve him and be absolutely committed to doing what his agenda is and not our own. Now, these things are things that we hear all the time. But what's important to understand as we look through the entire breadth of the Scriptures is this challenge is profound. This is not something that we do just by saying, oh, well, okay, from now on I'll believe. From now on I will orient my life to serving God rather than Him serving me. I will be dead to what I was before. I used to think that there was this crisis moment that you could just say, you know, I get it, and I'm going to just do whatever you want me to do. Five minutes later, I found myself disobeying the Lord because it doesn't go away. And the challenge that is laid before us is to recognize that our focus needs to be on this all the time. Part of the reason for that is what we're going to talk about next, the obstacles that lay before us. Now here, I'd like you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses. Now the context of this is talking about what we were before our conversion But what should surprise nobody is that if this is what characterized our condition before conversion, the same things will continue to be what causes it to be difficult for us to advance in our commitment to the Lord, to do what he calls us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And this is where he begins to talk about what characterized us before. In which you once walked those sins and trespasses according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, the devil, among whom those sons of disobedience also we once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Ever since Luther, it's been common for us to understand that the three obstacles we face, the three enemies to our soul in our quest to be what God calls us to be, are the world, the flesh, and the devil. So I'm not telling you anything new. But I think what can be helpful is instead of just taking it in its broadest terms, to understand it at its focal point, why these things are so dangerous to us. So dangerous, in fact, that when we, for instance, when we talk about the world, James tells us that... If we love the world, we are making ourselves an enemy of God. And John says in 1 John that if we love the world, the love of God is not in us. In other words, there's such a tremendous contrast between what the world is and what God is that you cannot possibly really love them both at the same time. When I was, uh, first became a Christian, 
I was taught that the world basically was watching certain kinds of television shows, going to see certain movies, playing cards, any kind, even Uno or something like that. I thought it just had to have an ace or something, but apparently it was any kind of card. <laughs> going into liquor stores, even if you were buying milk. And if you could avoid those things, then you were fine. But the problem with that, not necessarily that there aren't things included in that that don't present some kind of problem, but the essence of of the issue is not certain list of activities. Some of the most worldly people in the New Testament are the Pharisees, and if they lived today, they wouldn't do any of those things. The problem with the world is it's not a set of activities. Instead, it's a way of understanding life. The world, in essence, is whatever culture you find yourself in. And that culture is an expression of all those sinful people who live in it. And the one thing all those people have in common is they want things their way. And so that culture then is an expression of selfishness, self-absorption. Depending on how affluent or poor, that will take on different expressions. Now, many times in history, the world in its orientation to please someone was oriented around a few powerful people. And everybody else existed so that they could be happy. But in our world now, we live in a a society where all of us have an opportunity to participate in making our lives what we want them to be. So we're affected far more profoundly than probably the average person was in years in the past. And what will happen subtly is, is that this sort of forms a social atmosphere in which we live day by day. It influences our thinking. It influences our values. It influences what we do, how we do it. And sometimes in ways so subtle that we don't even understand that we're doing something wrong. You can illustrate this by reading church history. And you find people doing things and you're thinking, what were they thinking? You find, for instance, a few hundred years ago, godly people who were excellent exegetes of Scripture trying to justify slavery in this country. And the reason why they could not see beyond the issues that made it wrong were because in their in their culture, it was just assumed that there was nothing wrong with singling out a particular group of people just because of their racial background and treating them as subhuman. They were totally blind to that. Now, we can look because we're totally separated from that culture and say that's just foolishness. How could they not see that? Well, the reason why they couldn't see that is because they were in the midst of it. And that's what's so dangerous about this, that it's going to surface in ways that sometimes are very obvious, but more often than not are very subtle. And the most significant part of it will be to constantly make you think about yourself. One of the best illustrations is watching television. Everything that is done is on that program, whether whether you like or don't like, is an emphasis upon encouraging you to think about yourself. But that's not the only place, but that's where you can see a large amount of things and how it transpires. And that's just the opposite of what the Lord wants. Now, if we go back into uh, history, we see that God has always warned his people about this sort of thing and explains how serious he is about it by something that most Christians feel like they have to apologize for. In the book of Joshua, we read basically that God's people are called to commit genocide. And frequently people find this absolutely horrible. 
And even we as Christians, in trying to defend it, feel a little bit tongue-tied. Like, well, how am I going to justify God on this one? Because this sounds pretty bad. But they didn't do it. The people of Israel did not kill the people that they were supposed to. And for hundreds of years, the people of God were plagued by their world. The Canaanites influencing all that they did and all that they thought. And for centuries, there was misery that they suffered. And they fell so far short of what God had called them to be because these people were constantly pulling them to be something different than what they were supposed to be. If you understand the untold misery for generation after generation after generation, you realize why the solution had to be so severe. Jesus says something to the same effect. He says, if your eye offends you, in other words, if you can't stop sinning because your eye is picking up something that, and bringing into your soul, it is better for you to gouge it out and throw it out. That's how serious this is. The next one is the lust of the flesh. And I think even more than the world, this is probably a more intimate and more dangerous problem. And the best way I think to think of this is the lust of the flesh is simply this. I want what I want and I want it when I want it. And that that is one of the most driving forces that exists, in a sense, the defining drive of this whole struggle. The world sort of facilitates and encourages this desire that we have to find our fulfillment of our desires. It also, again, has a lot to do with the way that we tend to live out our Christian life. The tension that we have so often in our temptations is that there's something that we want that God is not letting us have. And the frustration that we feel, the hostility even to God and to our circumstances is a result of those desires being blocked. Frequently, because there's a little bit too much intellectual dissonance with allowing ourselves to be angry with God, we'll pretend that we're angry with our circumstances, we're angry with other people because they don't fulfill our expectations, we're angry with you know, our government or angry with whatever it might be, But God is in control of everything. So ultimately, when our desires are blocked, it's not other people. It's not our lack of ability. It's that God doesn't want us to have it. And that's a difficult place to be. We have to grow to the place where we recognize that that is a danger to us. That our desires have to be disciplined. That we have to be masters of our desires or they will master us. And I would say within those two things are where most of us fail most of the time because we do not take seriously the threat that these things represent to our souls. Finally, in the devil, we are warned is wandering about like a roaring lion seeking to devour us. And I think sometimes we can understand from that that the devil represents this power that he's going to overcome us and make us do something that we don't want to do. Or that he's going to do some kind of terrifying act that will intimidate us. But the most consistent thing that we are warned about him is that he is a liar, a deceiver. And he's very good at it. With centuries and centuries of practice. And he knows you and he knows me. And he knows the lies that we want to believe. Because after all, a lie is only effective if you can get you tell something to somebody that you think they were going to believe in. You include a little truth. You include some sense of self-benefit and you can deceive someone. And all the time, the evil one is working on us. 
So we have a world around us that's trying to conform us to itself. We have desires that are enticing us all the time to do things which God has told us not to do. And we have an enemy who is continually trying to persuade us that what God wants us to do is not in our best interest. There was a popular song years ago, and I'll try to quote this correctly. And it was written like this. I'd rather laugh with the sinners than die with the saints, because only the good die young. Now, what I think it's interesting about that song is that it expresses what's true inside all of us. There's a sense in which the evil one and the world around us and even our own desires can convince us that to do what God wants us to do is the most miserable path of life we could possibly choose. And if we say yes to God, we're saying no to everything that's important. Because frankly, he doesn't care how happy we are. He has his agenda. and If we get crushed under the wheels of his agenda, he doesn't care. But that's a lie. And it's a lie that's perpetuated by a culture that wants its own way despite what God says, by the desires that don't like being tamed, and by an evil one who does not want us to obey God. But that's not the life that we have to live. I have to admit, I've sometimes in the past have felt pretty pessimistic. As I look around my own life and others, I feel like, what has happened? What I read about here does not seem to materialize in the life of people that I know and in my own life. But I think that what has happened is we tend to take that a certain amount of defeat is inevitable. But this is where we get back to what Jesus said about the abundant life. I don't believe for a minute that defeat is inevitable. Defeat is only because we choose to be defeated. And that takes us to the resources that will help us succeed as disciples of Christ. And for that, I've... I want you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 4. Peter writes, and I think the, this is just incredible when you let this sink in. As His divine power has given to us all things that to pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. What a concept that we, in a sense, absorb God's nature into us. We internalize what He is and can become what He is. The Scriptures teach us that we have new natures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says that if we are truly Christ's, all things are new. But what's interesting is, I don't know about you, but after I became a Christian, I still sinned. How come? If I have a new nature, why do these... I still have this struggle with what I used to be. Why do the obstacles to my pursuit of holiness still block my way? And I think that there's something very profound that for many years I missed, and that is that God intentionally designed our growth and our spiritual lives so that we would be dependent. If our struggle is that we want things our way, and that we want to be in control, that we want to be the gods of our own existence, then one of the most crucial things that we need to learn is to be dependent on something else, that we are not sufficient of ourselves. And that's why we can have it our way. I don't think for a moment that God does not rich in His kindness and His generosity and His, His love. 
The blessings that we read in Deuteronomy, I think, are things that God wants His people to have all the time. But we don't get them because it would feed something pernicious inside of us. And so we are given trials and difficulties so that we will be weaned away from having things our own way all the time. The resources He's given us, all of them, require that we have some dependence on something else. The first is the Holy Spirit. And there's obviously so many things we could talk about with the Holy Spirit. But what I find interesting is one of the titles that's applied to him is, depending on your translation, the helper, the comforter, the counselor. But the word is a paraclete. And John uses it in one of his epistles and says that Jesus is our advocate using the same word, the idea that he defends us. The word is a compound word. It means someone who's called to come alongside you. And Jesus says that he's another comforter or another paraclete that's called beside you to help you and that word means another of the same kind in other words he's like jesus to us that's why when jesus said when i go it's good for you to go because you won't be alone because as he sent them into diverse places and situations in a human body he couldn't be with them all the time but the holy spirit could so god has given us part of himself The third member of the Trinity is with us. And his role is to help us succeed. I've read over this so many times, but it's staggering to think that the person of God dwells within us specifically so we will succeed. So we will not fail. So we will not be overcome by these obstacles that face us. But we have to be dependent upon him. The role that he plays is to guide us. And that goes very clearly, very closely with the second resource we have, which is the Word of God. And I think it's important to hold those two things together because the Word also is given to help us. But it's given to help us in a way that's very intimately related to our relationship with the Holy Spirit. Paul wrote that the Word of God was inspired, and it was inspired so that we would be taught, so we would understand the nature of what God is calling us to, that we would be reproved, in other words, shown where we're wrong and how we need to change to correct us so that we would understand what that looks like when we change our lives. And finally, instruction in righteousness, to know what we're supposed to do on a day-by-day basis. The Word is given to us so we will succeed. That's why, like David, we should love the Word because it is the most valuable thing that we could possibly have because it teaches us the absolute truth and shows us the way for the success to have the abundant life that God called us to. But the reason why I think it's important to consider that closely with the Holy Spirit is that there's a danger with the idea of the Holy Spirit if it's misunderstood. Because what can happen is we begin to confuse any kind of impression that we have inside as being the way that the Holy Spirit is nudging us. I have found in people I've talked to justification for the most ungodly things on the basis of the Spirit led me to do that. But that's not how the Spirit speaks. The Spirit speaks through His Word. If you read what Jesus goes on to say about this Helper, He says He will not speak of His own, but He will speak My words to you. He will teach you. He will bring to remembrance the things that I have told you. Therefore, if you want to be led by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, it's absolutely crucial to know and to know accurately the Word of God. Because if you don't, there's nothing He can use to speak to you with any kind of authority. Because he will not speak just on the basis of hunches or desires or impressions. Because we are so easily deceived. 
But those things exist to show us the way. And we can take these things for granted because every week, week after week we come here and we are taught excellently from the Word of God. But apart from that, we simply do not know what God wants. And we're fooling ourselves to think that we do. And we're very easily deceived into sort of subtly placing within those white spaces between the lines the things that we want. So it's crucial for us to be totally dependent upon this resource that teaches us the absolute truth of what God wants and to seek the help of one who leads us and guides us in the right direction. Another is prayer. When I first became a Christian, is another thing I really didn't understand. I thought prayer was basically our, my way of getting God again to do what I wanted Him to do. You know, and I figured the way I had Him boxed into a corner is if I said, and I pray this in Jesus' name, like God was saying, oh, I didn't want to do that. What can I do? He said Jesus' name, so now i got to do it. But that idea is totally misunderstanding. The idea of praying in Jesus' name in that culture, to say something in someone else's name was equivalent to what an ambassador will do from the United States of America. An ambassador doesn't go and say whatever he wants to say and say, by the way, that's what the president said. He only speaks on behalf of what the president really said and has authority because of what was said. So as we pray in Jesus' name, the emphasis of this is that we're not supposed so much changing God and him and what he thinks, and what his agenda is, prayer is a time for our agenda to be changed. The bending of our will. It doesn't mean that God doesn't respond and do things for us. That's part of prayer because it teaches us again that dependence upon the Lord. That we don't have within ourselves the resources to do all the things that we need. We don't, can't supply our needs. We can't supply the things that we eat or anything that we need. We can't even do our spiritual lives apart from him. So part of that is this expression of dependence. But another part of it is to recognize that when we first came to the Lord, we were all screwed up. And we are learning through our conversation with him how to change, how to be what he wants us to be, and growing in our attachment to him. Finally, another uh, resource is fellowship. What's interesting is the noun that's applied to the Holy Spirit as a title is used as a verb frequently to refer to what our responsibility is to one another. This is, to me, a very hard thing because it's so discouraging when you see how we relate to one another. A lot of times when we have accountability relationships, are, we're doing this because it's something we should do. Or we do it because somebody's bugging us by what they do. But the emphasis here is that we are to, to try to energize one another. It's this word is translated to encourage, to beg, to plead, to implore. And the idea is the same as with the Holy Spirit, that we should be there to help one another. We're not on a journey by ourselves. We're on a journey as a community of people. And it should be one of the most important things in our lives that we want everyone else to succeed as much as we want to succeed. And that God has designed it so that we cannot possibly succeed as we should apart from one another. When uh, Paul describes how we will all come to the measure of the fullness of Christ, he says it says each one contributes according to the ways that God has gifted them. We need one another. 
And we don't just need one another to chide each other or to look down on each other or to be critical of each other or to be insensitive to one another. We need to recognize that for each of us, this journey of faith is difficult. It can be disheartening. And frequently, we have to deny the things that we really want. And it's hard. And we should be there for one another to give one another the energy to keep doing what is right, even when it breaks your heart to do so. Just like the Holy Spirit does. And that doesn't mean that you don't confront, because the Holy Spirit confronts us and we should confront one another. But we confront one another because we're brokenhearted over the fact that something's in your life that's going to keep you from succeeding. Not because we think we're so superior to you that you just irritate us because you do the things that you're doing. Finally, is the goal of being a disciple. There's an old saying that if you aim at nothing, you hit it every time. And so if we don't know what we're aiming for, we have a very difficult time achieving it. What is it that we're being called to as disciples? Why do we have a different way of looking at life? Why should we be worried about these obstacles? Why should we avail ourselves of these resources? What are we shooting at? What are we trying to achieve? Three basic things that occur frequently in the New Testament of what we're called to to be. The first is that we would be like Christ. What's amazing is that the Son of God not only came to redeem us, but He came to live the life that He Himself is calling us to. There's nothing that He is asking us to do that He Himself has not already done. There's nothing that we will suffer that He has not suffered. There's no pressure that we will go through that He has not gone through. And He gives us a dramatic and full presentation of what the abundant life is all about. Now, obviously, we know that from the prophecy of Isaiah that Jesus was characterized as a man of sorrows. But I think we can take from that something that wasn't intended. The idea was of the suffering that was necessary for our redemption. And it's a part of that we do have to partake of. But on the other hand, when Jesus spoke of himself and what he was going to give to us, he said that he wants our joy to be full. That he wants us to have his peace. He wants us to have the abundant life. The abundant life doesn't mean we have every car we might want. We have as much money as we could possibly conceive of. Constantly good health. If you think that that's what the abundant life is, then you're living according to the life that should be dead. There is a richer and a fuller life. But it's important to understand that that life is, in fact, rich and abundant. Another one of the things we're called to is be holy. And holy in a lot of, and basically in its most definitional sense is to be separate. And it's to be separate from anything that is contrary to the nature of God. So in, another, in a way, it's almost saying the same thing. To be holy is to be like Christ, and to be like Christ is to be like God. In other words, we are aiming at a, having a family resemblance to our Father in Heaven who is redeeming us. It means to be separated from this world and anything that's contrary to Him. Another thing we're called to be is righteous. And that means to conform one's life to everything that God has commanded us to do. But all those things are ways of saying something that is even more profound. Because you can aim towards all those things, and if you don't understand another principle, you will completely misunderstand the goal that you're shooting for. 
Jesus was asked basically what was the most important of all the commandments, the greatest. If I'm going to do one thing, God, what should it be? When you get a question like that and God in his flesh answers it, it's important to pay attention. Jesus said in Matthew 22, starting in verse 37, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Why this is important, not only because Jesus said that this was the greatest commandment, but this encapsulates all that we're really aiming to be. To be right, to be holy, and to be like Christ is to love God with everything that we are and to love others as we love ourselves. Anything short of that is not what it means to be like Christ. It's not what it means to be righteous, and it's not what it means to be holy. Those other definitions were given to us because love is a problematic thing. Because it tends to get reinterpreted by whoever's giving you the definition of love. To some people, they can beat their spouse and say they love them. So you have to have more definition than just the word love because people begin to feel all sorts of other things into it. To some, love is just sentimentality, having ooey-gooey feelings. To others, it's having no feelings whatsoever, but simply doing what is right. But what we learn from all these things that we're told about what we're supposed to be like, what it means to be right by understanding all that God calls us to, what it means to be holy, we learn what it means to be loving. But also that then helps us understand the central tension and why it exists. Why do we sin? Why do we do what we want to do in spite of what God has told us? Because we love ourselves a lot more than we love God. Because we don't love Him, we really don't care that much about what He says. It sounds harsh, but that's the facts. Those are the realities. And the reason why we act selfishly toward other people is because we really don't care that much about them. Our basic nature is to treat God and everybody else as if they exist merely to make us happy. And that's evil. That is the heart of darkness. And what God is calling us to is the exact mere opposite of that. That we would be people who are not self-obsessed, but people who are so absorbed in the Lord that we love Him. And we, do, we obey Him not because we have to, or because we're afraid what will happen if we don't. But we grow to the place where we want to do that because anything else is inconceivable to us. Because to love God means you have to know what and who He is. And when you know Him and you believe He is what He says He is, and you love Him for that, you wouldn't think of doing anything that He, didn't, that he would not want you to do. Because you know only your own ruin can possibly come from that. So going back to the question of, that comes up, from the life of Samson. Do we want to end up like that? When our life is reviewed, do we want to look back and say, you know, I did what I wanted and I got to heaven, but my life was a wash. There was nothing that God did to it. My life was not abundant. I wasted it on what I wanted. I was rebellious. And in the end, nothing came of it. Or... Do you really want to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant? 
Uh, in theology, they call that the, the moment when we come into the presence of God, the beatific vision, where it's so tr- He is so glorious and so wonderful, it transforms everything about you. I have no anticipation that people will be weeping and sobbing in heaven because of what they did on earth. But I know that there's going to be a real sense of loss. And it's kind of mysterious. I don't know how that all works out. But what we do now will matter in eternity. And the way we, another way that we succeed is instead of looking at people like Samson who failed, we need to focus on the Lord. Because the Lord was called to do many things that were very, very difficult. None more difficult than facing the wrath of His Father. But for the joy that was set before Him, that moment when He would come back to the Father, He did what He was called to do and did it with a sense of joy and anticipation. There's a lot of things that we need to know about the Word. And there's a lot of things we need to know about the Christian life. But nothing is more crucial, more central to its theme, than we need to understand that our lives are all about submitting ourselves to everything that God says with all of our heart and with all of our passion and that He be the most important thing in our universe. And that that's what we're aiming for in anything. Anything that stands in the way is something that we should hate with an equal passion. And anything that will help us get there is something that we should make every effort to embrace. And that that should control the way we look at life. Recognizing that every minute of every day there will be influences upon us to try us to be distracted. So we will do the same thing that Samson said. Why did he go after this particular girl? She looked good to me. But we need to be keeping our eyes on something else. That moment when our lives will be over, can we say that we had a life that was well lived? If you'll join me in prayer, please. Father, I find this whole subject very sobering. And I even find it difficult to be lecturing or preaching to other people when I find, Father, how far short I fall. How little love for you there is in my soul. How little love there is in all of us compared to to how worthy you are of our love. Father, it's so easy to be distracted in this world. It's so easy to be caught up in pursuing a life that we want and to totally miss the life that you came to bring us and to sample so little of the abundant life that you came to provide. I pray, Father, that in my life and in the lives of my brothers and my sisters, that you will do a work of grace in our hearts, Father. Help us to understand, to see with a purity of vision what life is all about, to see that we desperately need to die to this life and we desperately need to be risen to a new life. Help us, Father, because we are dependent upon you. These things are beyond us, and we need you, and we need one another too, to do these things. And, Father, we trust that not only will our lives be enriched as we do them, but also the world around will see an amazing transformation in us. And they will see that which draws their own souls to us, and to know the God who did such wondrous and amazing things within us. And we pray these things, and we trust that you will... Respond to us and rescue us because we pray these things in your dear Son's name. Amen.